Hello, and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I have mass, and I take up space. That is true. That is true of all of us. So today we're going to be doing a little bit of a continuation of our Diablo class series. Uh, we're going to be moving on to part three. But before we do that, I would like to mention that if you do have questions for the show, or if you have a topic that you want us to cover, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, you can also go ahead and send those in on our Patreon uh, Discord channel. Uh, we have one set aside specifically for podcasts and queue questions. And if you are not a Patreon supporter and want to do it on Discord anyway, we do have a queue uh, question section where we do look as well. But be sure to send those in, especially if you have themes or questions for this show, or if you happen to have questions for the other podcast, please send them in. We, we, need, we need them. We like them. But without further ado, we're going to be discussing some more Diablo classes, and today we're going to be focusing on, well, another three of them. Uh, in particular, the Necromancer, the Demon Hunter, and the Amazon. Matt, which one would you think we should start with today? Um, the Monk, because I went and looked up a bunch of stuff about <laughs> I thought we were doing the Monk. I'm sorry. You're the one that picked! Uh, we, can also do, we can also do the Monk instead, uh, but if you want to start with the Monk, feel free. <laughs> Slight change of plans. We're doing it live, folks. Oh, God. I'm uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the cool thing about the monk is their religion. Because the monk kind of... I don't know if you've like ever looked it up. It's actually really fascinating. They, they have a faith called Soptev, um, which is derived from two actual real-world words, which I'll, we'll get into later. But Soptev basically has the belief in a thousand and one gods. And they're like... Everything from, like, you know, the spirit of fire in the hearth to, like, you know, water in this particular river or air that we breathe. There's, like, gods for everything. It's it's, it's kind of similar to animism okay. or Hinduism in real life. It's based on kind of both of them. Although, obviously, animism and Hinduism aren't the same thing. But it, it's inspired by both. Uh, and it's kind of hard to really know exactly how to explain it. it. It's There's, like, gods and goddesses for all sorts of stuff. Um, there's gods of order and gods of chaos, and the Soptev, the Soptev faith is kind of all about finding a balance. So it's similar to necromancy. Maybe that's why I got on this, because uh, necromancers in, in Diablo are also about balance. But the, the, the essential nature of Soptev, the, the, the faith as it is based, is all about ba mastering the self to achieve balance personally, and then helping to achieve balance in the world, helping to be the instrument of that hmm. through your own self-perfection, essentially. And there are people who, within Saptev, the, the patriarchs who are in charge of it, there's there's nine of them. And if you played a monk in Diablo 3, you might know that because of what happens in um, Reaper Souls, because you, you come upon four of the nine patriarchs die to Malthiel's forces, and, and you run into one of them. Oh, I can't remember his name, but you run into one of them at the at the actual Pandemonium Fortress when you're going to confront Malthiel. One of the patriarchs is there. Uh, but but yeah, they, there's nine of them in total. Uh, four of them are devoted to order. Um, the other four are devoted to chaos, and one is essentially neutral. And the neutral one basically serves as the balance point around which the other eight uh, essentially orbit. And that's that's how they 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 kind of try and reach that level of balance in everything. It's 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 not entirely dissimilar to the Taoist ideal of yin and yang, 
Okay. Or the the Tao itself, you know, the Tao, you know, the Tao that can be understood is not the true Tao sort of thing. It's that concept of, you know, interpolating forces. And apparently part of the idea of this was to the idea that the, the soft heads, uh, priests, the, the patriarchs and so forth had kind of a, a metaphorical understanding of the eternal conflict. They didn't necessarily know about it specifically. They didn't talk to devils or angels or anything. But they knew about it in a kind of metaphysical sense. They understood that the universe was on this balance point between these two conflicting forces. And uh, yeah, so that's that's basically the Saptev faith and Ivgorod, which is the place where the Saptev are are holding true. It's it's a very small land now. It used to be much larger. Uh, it used to control like parts of. Of honor well, of the Anorak and so forth, but it's it's right now it's just up there near it's kind of north of Lut Galane, I think. So if I'm uh, looking at the map correctly, Ivgarad is uh, not too far from Tristram, which makes sense considering that they were around in the first game. Uh, but it's sort of like this in between point of like right in the mountains between Tristram and Arnok. Um, yeah, and like maybe a stone's throw away from uh, Lut Galane. So they're they're right there. They're right they're right in the middle of everything. They've been around for quite a while yeah it's a right nowadays it's the the nation of ivgorod used to be like bigger it used to go into the anorak more and so forth but the city of Isgarod is is now basically just a, an independent city state by itself which is up in the mountains but yeah so but that's where monks are from monks don't don't really like there might there are ob, ob, there are other monks in the world, you know, like other orders have their own monks. The monks we're talking about are the specific ones from Ivgarod who have that specific faith. Which are the There's, ones that the, are the player character from Diablo 3. Yeah, exactly. Um, those, those, that's not the same as, there are monks in, in the Zakarum faith, for example. There are monks in other places. But those monks don't flip around and kick people with lightning fists and stuff like that. That's, that, that stuff is unique to the, the monks of this particular group, this the Saptev faith, um, which is I, I think is really one of the more interesting things about uh, the the monks in in Diablo, because they have this extremely broad animistic faith. That it's kind of fascinating to see how they approach the world. Like to them, you know, your, your average angel or demon is also possibly a god. I mean, it, and they treat the angels like gods, but also not like gods. Well, I mean, they have a different they have a different way that they approach gods. I think in general, which I think is one of yeah, the, the more interesting things about it, right? So, like, I think it's what the thousand and one gods is what they call it, and it's the ones that yeah. dwell in mm-hmm. everything. So they believe that, like, you know, there's one god in the water, one in the fire, one in air, etc., uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So everything that they come across could be a representation of the power or animus of that sort of god given form. But they interact with it in the same way that reminds me very, very much of what. Um, Eastern religions in the modern world think of of almost like house spirits, uh, where there can be different minor gods or gods to, that could worship that you know revolve around your everyday life, and it seems like they almost approach it in that same sort of manner. And as a result, it's not that the gods to them are these untouchable masses; these are things that they could, in theory, interact with. Which is why, like you're saying. You know, they could see an angel and a demon, and that could be considered a god uh, in maybe certain capacities. But that doesn't mean that they can't punch them. Um, 
<laughs> because they can. They can interact with them at a very real level. It's not it's not just meta for them. It's it's reality for them. And so I think that's really fascinating because if you look at some of the older books uh, where we start talking about like the religion in Diablo, there is a sort of sense of these higher powers that are untouchable, that are outside of being fully knowable. Uh, even when you're talking about like, uh, I can't remember the name of the church at this point. Uh, the one that Mephisto was in, in charge of for a little while. The Triumph? Yeah, the Triumph. Like, even they had sort of like an element of that where it was like, you know, there's these powers that are way above us that we can't touch because, well, that was what they wanted them to believe. And then you have uh, the monks of the Ivgarad who are just like, no, no, we can touch it. We can touch it and do and interact with it because, you know, it's there. We exist in the same level of existence as the rest of them. Um, I find it very interesting that they sort of adhere to... I don't want to say like sort of like the movie-esque aspect of monks, um, because I've never met a monk in real life, so I don't know. Uh, but revolving around sort of like that sort of cinema style where it's martial arts, meditation, purity of the mind and soul and body. Uh, and it's like this perfection of self. It almost reminds me very much of like the old school uh, D&D monks where it was this purity of self equals this balance point, And if you can reach that balance point, you could reach perfection, I, I guess, or, or divine state, uh, and that you can affect things around you in a very real manner as a result of it. And I think the monks kind of do that in Diablo with the representation of how they use uh, spirit, gain spirit, and uh, sort of use that spiritual energy to make uh, elemental things happen around them or to become more effective in combat. And I also like the idea that as a group, there is this idea of defending the weak against evil or against harm as part of their balancing point, right? And I think that's really interesting, too, because they don't, like you said, they don't really know about the larger conflict at, at, at whole, but they do know that, like, hey, if this family is going to get hurt, that's a bad thing. The right thing to do is to protect them so that there's, you know, things can progress or or be quote-unquote normal um they're almost but like that wandering time, hero yeah, absolutely but at the same time they're not like since they're not overly trusting they don't they weren't they were prepared for the attack from malthiel they 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 mm -hmm. still got you know savaged by it but they were ready to fight malthiel because they didn't have a blind faith in angels they knew that order and chaos are just the flip sides of each other you can't really trust either one that's why you have to maintain the balance mm-hmm and that's what monks go forth in the world to do. And they have like a lot of different, there are different monks who have different opinions on how to do it. But that's the basic idea of their order is that there's these continuous shifting forces in conflict with each other. And in order to balance them properly, you have to reach this point of balance between them. You, you have to kind of stand between them and stand outside them in order to achieve balance. It, it's, it's an interesting group. I, I, I would like to see more done with it in the Diablo universe. Hopefully we'll see more of their lore in Diablo Immortal. Maybe we'll get to go to Ivgarod or something. And I think it's actually really important, too, especially with Diablo 4 on the horizon. Like, I think their story kind of plays into the larger aspect of what's going on as well, especially because, again, they're outside of that conflict. They're outside of that 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 balance. They don't trust the angels. They don't have blind faith in them. They definitely don't trust the demons. But it's also sort of that reliance on themselves as the middle point or humanity or the, the um, 
wow, I can not the Nephilim as essentially as sort of like, this is where we are. This is what we trust. We trust in what we can do and the actions that we can take. And it seems to be sort of in line with that idea as almost like the eternal conflict is starting to, I don't want to say come to an end, but we are definitely reaching a climax point. Uh, as far as everything goes with everything that happened in Diablo three, uh, with the mass destruction, uh, that was wrought upon humanity that sort of like further reinforces that point, right? They can't trust others to do what they need to do. And so it's up to humanity themselves to sort of be that balance point, to bring that order, to rail against demons and angels alike. Uh, and like you said, they still got ravaged by it, but at least they're prepared for it. The yeah. I mean, it goes back to like, one of the things that, that the monks have done in the past when, when, when Rakhis was coming from, uh, not Chaldeum. Oh, bloody heck, I can't remember the name of the nation Chaldeum is a part of. Regardless. But when, when the Rakhis was leading the, the Zacharum faith, uh, west to, to found what is, you know, now West March, uh, he attacked Ivgarod and he beat their forces on, on, the Aranok Desert, you know, the, the plains of Aranok, he beat them there and established his foothold. But when he tried to go into the Gogora forests to, to conquer Ivgarod once and for all, that's where the monks basically used the forest to hide themselves and basically harassed his forces so much that they couldn't reach Ivgarod, the city. They sort of turned the, the tide and pushed him further south. In the process, you know, Westmarch got founded. It, it kept him from getting where he was actually trying to go. Because Rockius wanted to go to to uh, the Worldstone, he was trying to get up to where the into to, to Ariat, and the monks eventually prevented him from getting there. Uh, and then, of course, once he tried to go the other way to get up there, he walked into the barbarians. So it was like you know, <clears throat> it's interesting to wonder what would have happened had they not you know diluted had blunted his advance if he had gone, gotten to go straight up to Ariat from there. Would they have been able to hold him off? I don't know. Uh, I'd like to believe so because I play Barbarian a lot, but it's still interesting to think that the monks were important in that moment of balance to prevent Rockies from reaching the Worldstone. Uh, I don't know what would have happened had Rockies reached it because he wasn't a demon, but letting anybody have control of the Worldstone is, was a very bad idea. So that's that's something I find really fascinating too, that, that the monks have had a role on history for that long, even though nobody really knows much about them. The uh, One of the other things that I think is very interesting about them is uh, how they approach uh, it. They call it the light, um, but I'm not sure if that's just a hangover from some of the older uh, aspects of the game, but their tattoos are sort of a way of interfacing with the power of their spirituality. And I think that is absolutely uh, fascinating because it's a physical representation, almost like a rune priest, uh, in a, in the way that they complete it. It helps them channel their power and it can take an entire lifetime, uh, before they even get close to the completion. And this is a, uh, I believe it takes, it's on their back, I believe is where it's supposed to be located. And it's supposed to be the culmination of their, their journey and their learned enlightenment. And I think that's, that's fascinating because it's a physical representation of that that particular monk's personal growth and understanding uh, and allows them to do some of the, the I guess, monkey-type things that they do, um, which I think is... Hey, hey you said monkey. Hey, hey, I did. Uh, but I think it's I think it's really fascinating because I think the only other uh, class that canonically uses tattoos, but not even for that matter, I think it's barbarians, isn't it? They use it as sort of like markings or representations. I can't remember what... They, they do have tattoos. I don't know if it's considered anything. They just like have art. 
Yeah, fair enough. But I think it's I think it's interesting that the aesthetic choice sort of feeds into the spirituality and mentality of the character. So what else would you like to say about monks there? Um, I think that kind of covers it. I mean, they're not really, unlike a lot of the other classes in Diablo history, they're not like, they've never really been big on the world stage. They don't come out very often. When they do, it tends to be either to defend themselves or the balance. Um, they're, they're cool. I like them. Uh, I, I think they have... In a lot of ways, they've got a really interesting uh, outlook on the world, and it's it's you know the way it works. So I, I I like the fact that there are one of the things I like about the Diablo setting in general is that there are all these religions that that don't really have they don't really necessarily relate to the whole eternal conflict and the demons and the angels and their conflicts. Uh, and there's like like Tianza is another one that comes to mind. Where they have all these different gods and spirits, and we have really no idea what they are, or if they're anything, or where they come from, or, or anything about them. Uh, Nov- you know, no, Ivgorod also kind of has that, and that's kind of fascinating to me. I'd love to see more. Like, I want to see more of the places that we haven't really seen much of in Diablo. So, so yeah, I, I think that's, that monks are pretty cool. Now, speaking of pretty cool and possibly extraordinarily relevant to the story that is about to happen to the uh, broader world of Diablo, we could talk about the Necromancers next, which otherwise known as the Priests of Rothma. Um, yeah, the, this, again, this is also another class that's pretty highly about balance. They don't have the specific belief in order and chaos, but they do really much like balance. They're about balancing out, you know, if something is in the ascendance, you have to watch it. You have to make sure that nothing ever gets too powerful nothing gets too dominant you don't want a a world where you know a world that has you know lilith in charge controlling the nephilim they were like no that's a bad idea and so that during the sin war they were opposed to lilith but for right now who knows they might feel like okay the world is going too much in this other direction so we'll we'll bring lilith back and let lilith do things i don't know that that's going to be what they do but it, it could happen they're very much about balance in their own way. Well, and that sort of comes from the idea of uh, Rathma himself and in service to Tragul, doesn't it? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Tragul is the, is the dragon of balance. And we don't know what Tragul is or where it comes from, but we know that it exists and it's very much involved in, in, and wants balance to be maintained. Uh, Tragul is the force that uh, Linarian, which is the being who, one of the first Nephilim, the actual child of uh, Lilith and Inarius. Uh, Linarian reached out to the cosmos itself looking for answers, and it was Tragul that answered him and showed him the balance. And it's always been interesting to me because necromancy doesn't seem like an extremely balanced ability. When you look at necromancy, you don't think, ah, yes, this balances things. But in a way, it kind of does because it's like it suspends death. It's like life and death. Neither life nor death exists in necromancy. Because, you know, you're making the dead move and act, but they're not alive. But can they be said to be dead if they're moving and acting? It's it's interesting. It's, it is a fascinating thing to look at. And the, the Priests of Rathma, basically, interestingly enough, though, it is not Rathma who inspired the Priests of Rathma. Um, it is actually Odysseus' brother, Mendel, who was also a Nephilim and who met with Rathma and with... Tragul and learned from both of them. He is the one who founded the priests of Rathma. The priests of Rathma are technically the priests of Mendel, mm-hmm. uh, not Rathma. Rathma did not teach them anything. He t- he taught Mendel. He didn't teach them. Uh, it's from Mendel that all the teachings and all the lessons of the priests of Rathma come from. So, in a way, 
also, because of this, the Priests of Rathmar are one of the few groups that actually understands the Sin War. Because most people don't know what happened. Uh, at the end of the Sin War, Odysseus used his power, which was at this point so great that he could control the World Stone without being in contact with it. And he used it to reset the World Stone so that Nephilim stopped being born. Because the Sin War, keep in mind, it was like, I, I forget exactly when it was, but it was in the past. It wasn't very recently either. It was when the angels and demons first discovered Sanctuary. Uh, Odysseus used his power as a Nephilim, as an, a fully ascended Nephilim, to essentially grab hold of the World Stone and set it back on so that it that would not allow Nephilim to be born again, even though he himself and all of his followers were Nephilim, because he believed that they were too dangerous for, his, for the world of Sanctuary to exist with, uh, because they would bring the attention of the angels and the demons, and he didn't want that. So he not only did he reset it so that they wouldn't be born anymore, he reset everything so that they weren't born in the first place. He wiped himself and his followers, not just he didn't kill them, he made them have never existed. So the people of Sanctuary don't remember the Sin War because it never happened as far as they're concerned. It, now the angels and the demons know about it because they're not, they weren't affected because they weren't in Sanctuary. They were beings from outside of it that were outside of it at the time. And the only person who remembers it, like, of the of the people who were there, is Mendel. So the priests of Rathma know the Sin War happened. Mm -hmm. And they're the only ones, really, of most of the people of Sanctuary. Even people like Deckard Cain don't really know what happened. He knows something happened, and he thinks that the image of Aldysian in his great sacrifice is what inspired the Zakarum faith. But he doesn't really know what happened. Only a very few people do. Now, I think that's actually fascinating because of what what we are speculating is going to be happening in Diablo 4, right? In Diablo 4, we know that Lilith is back. And Lilith is one of the ones that orchestrated or is the orchestrator of essentially the Nephilim to begin with. And even though the priests of Rathma, the necromancers, opposed Lilith during the Sin War, uh, it is interesting to note that the minya or the the person that is seen releasing her is thought to be Rathma. Uh, we don't know for sure. Nothing's been confirmed, but it begs the question of why now? What what could this potentially be? And is this a reaction to everything that happened during Diablo three, in which humanity was just completely ravaged? Is now this the point of balance where now it's time for the rest of humanity to wake up as Nephilim? Um, which I guess we are kind of sort of starting to do at this point in Diablo 3. Yes, no, maybe. Well, at least some have. We've got at least one that we know of. That's the other thing about Diablo 3 and Diablo 4. We don't know what happens to those Nephilim. We don't know if you're playing a Nephilim in Diablo 4. We've heard nothing about this. Your character might just be a character, might just be a human. They might not be a Nephilim. In fact, they probably aren't. And that's, like, what does that mean, that they're not? Where, it, where did the Nephilim go after they defeated uh, Malthiel? Did they go back to Sanctuary? Or did they, you know, roam the you know, pandemonium just murdering everything they came across? We don't know. We have no idea what happened. We know that Sanctuary was reduced, you know, it, basically the social sophistication of Sanctuary was like kicked back a, like 500 years. You've got, you know, scattered communities all across the world that are not reaching out. Nations are falling. Everybody's like terrified and isolated. None of us have gotten a haircut in like a year. Oh wait, no, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm not talking about sanctuary anymore. Back to sanctuary. Uh, 
there's a lot going on. And we have yet to really figure out exactly what the role of the Nephilim will be if they're even mentioned in, in Diablo 4. But it does feel likely that if that was Rathma, if that was Rathma, that's the first Nephilim. Yep. If before Bolkathos, before Fiakligyar, before Isu, before any of them, the, there was Linarian Rathma. And whilst he did not found the Priest of Rathma, I am relatively certain that if Rathma himself comes to the Priest of Rathma and says, do what I want, they will do so. I mean, he they will believe that he is a good judge of the balance because he is the one who taught Mendelm about the balance. So I, I am fascinated by this. I don't know. There's a lot we don't know about what's going on here, but definitely if Rathma is the one there who summons Lilith in that cinematic that we've all seen, uh, that is an interesting difference. You know, in, in the Sin War, during the Sin War, Rathma helped banish his mother. He, he, it was Lodissian who did it, but Rathma was part of it. And that's, like, I mean, I find myself wondering, are we going to see, like, are we going to see Anarius again? Yeah, and you know, and that's one of those things that that I think is also tied up very heavily in in the necromancer story, obviously, because you know the whole Rathma thing and the whole being the first Nephilim born of Anarius and Lilith. One of the other aspects we saw during the Diablo Four trailer was a being wrapped in chains and hooks and being tortured, which is also often thought to be uh, Anarius, right? It's it's thought that that's what happened to him. That was the payment. Or repayment for his crimes that were being suffered upon him. But with Lilith coming back, does she reach out and does she, you know, rescue, for lack of a better term, or do we rescue Anarius from his prison? Uh, and what does that mean after he's been tortured for all this time and, and tormented? Uh, is this a point where he becomes, in terms of balance, another point of balance because he is no longer fully angelic he's not demonic he's somewhere in between at this point we don't know um i would be fascinated to see if anarius is brought back and if he does play into the story which it does feel if diablo 4 is going to sort of cap the uh the nephilim story off or bring it to a a climax that it would be proper to have anarius there or or at least in some capacity even if it's at odds with Lilith if they are fighting once again to destroy all Nephilim or turn everything over to the Nephilim and end the eternal conflict. So um, one thing I wanted to go back to and talk about was the power of the necromancers. And you, you touched on this briefly where, you know, you talked about they suspend death. They summon things back or reanimate corpses. The interesting thing about that to me is that that power was first seen as something that the Hells was able to summon. If you go back to the original Diablo games and you're going through, let's say, Diablo 1, and you're making your way through uh, the dungeon uh, all the way down towards the bottom, one of the most common things you encounter are undead. Uh, zombies or skeletons or th amalgamations of uh, flesh and bone. And it's very much associated with Diablo. As a matter of fact, most of the time that you go into anything that is slightly demonic, there are tons and tons of reanimated corpses, which is fascinating because, again, necromancers, which are ostensibly mages and or, or yeah, I guess mages would be the best way to put it, uh, that have the ability to uh, reanimate and control the the undead or the dead. Um that's why they're labeled as necromancers, but they themselves view it as just being part of like the great cycle of being life, death. It's all, it's all the same. It's just resources or, uh, part of the fight to maintain the balance. 
And I think that's, I think that's fascinating that their power draws so close or so much from uh, what is often associated with demonic heritage, yet they're considered heroes for the purposes of game storytelling. Um, I also think it's very funny that, uh, I shouldn't even say funny, we talked a little bit about this before with the Mage War and the uh, the corruption of the Mage Clans when we talked about the Sorcerer and the Wizard. Uh, despite being wielders of magic, the necromancers never suffered from uh any of that epidemic corruption that that was part of like the mage wars or anything like that they were always outside of it which also goes in line with being that point of balance right they don't well it's interesting because the there's two groups that use a similar kind of magic the uh amongst the amazons there are the oracles mm -hmm. the oracles uh, technically the amazons and the oracles are two of the uh the, the two castes of the Ascari people and oracles use a magic called prime magic that they, they can use to empower themselves in various ways. And the only other users of prime magic are the priests of Rathma, who use it for necromancy. And that's how their necromancy differs from the necromancy of the Nine Hells. It's a different magic, even though it's the same basic result. The, the necromancy that the priests of Rathma use is in balance with the universe around them. In a way that, of course, Diablo, you know, the necromancers of the Nine Hells, the, the demons that, that do necromancy, are still manipulating the dead, but they're not doing it in a balanced way. They're just ripping the, the dead out of the corp of the ground. They're just forcing them to serve their will. Or causing living beings to become the undead in a perversion yes. of life if, instead of waiting for them to be actually dead, which, again, necromancers are just doing that. The things are already dead. They're not, they're not making fresh dead like that. Not the same way. Yeah, and it's it is interesting that there is a difference. It's it's like necromancy in of itself is just a term for anybody using magic to 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 you know alter the dead or animate the dead. And then there's the specific necromancers of the priests of Rathma versus the generic necromancer who might be a demon worshiper or a demon itself. So that's that's a pretty interesting thing to think about and to look at. There's it would be like kind of similar to the way you can have sorcerers and wizards and they're both kind of using the same magic really and doing the same kind of things but they are different at the same time because sorcerers tend to be from the Zanesu and uh, wizards are not from any real school uh, there's interesting back and forth aspects to it yeah and i and i i think that's actually kind of i think that's the most fascinating thing about necromancers for me as well is that uh, despite having that same sort of like similar power and have they saw that differentiation, right? Um, they view what they do as uh, part of trying to maintain the balance, right? Whether it's raising an army of dead to beat back uh, an entire like invading force of demons uh, or corrupt corruption or whatever it is, they're there and present. Even in Diablo three, like you come across. Um, the, I think it was a Kalan or Kalan is like the canonical name for the necromancer from Diablo 2. Um, you know, the Diablo necromancer from Diablo 2 is Zul. Zul. Okay. Um, but you encounter him a couple times and every time you encounter him when you're doing. Oh no, that guy's not Zul. That guy I is. I thought it was. In Kalan. No, it's his serve. It's his student. That guy is, oh, okay. is a student. It's his apprentice. So it is Kalan that you encounter. Um, but when you encounter him, it's always in 
one of those quests or events where he's trying to uh, take angry spirits and cleanse an area or interact with uh, essentially the environment to try to bring it back to a natural state because the balance has been upset. Uh, it has agitated whatever is there. Uh, to such a degree that it is harmful to those around it. Uh, and so that's what they're using their power for is to, uh, try to bring it back to it. It's essentially it's a natural state. It's, it's well, okay, back in line, also, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, not to interrupt you, but, uh, I went back and made sure of this. Kalan is a title. Oh, Kalan is Mendel's title. That's not the guy. Okay. Kalan is what they called Mendel. It's just, it's a name. Interesting. So, yeah, no. Kalan is not Mendel. Okay. I mean, Kalan, Kalan is Mendel. That's not Kalan we meet. Um, I'm trying to actually find him because I, I know, I remember the guy we, we meet. It's not Zul either. Uh, do, 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 do this guy? No, I think he's the dead guy. No, Zale is the dead guy that you meet in. Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, I can't. I know the guy you're talking about. I remember him from Diablo 3. You meet him in the desert when you're out running around, but I can't find who it was. Yeah, and so. I, I actually don't know if he has a name. I thought he did. Well, regardless, I, I just think it's fascinating that like you actually see the necromancer doing exactly what the lore says that they should be doing. Uh, not so much from a, you know, I didn't expect that, but it's very rare for those moments to happen in a game like Diablo where you can have an event that is that is 100% informed by the lore of that class, uh, which I think is is very 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 cool. Um, but yeah, anything else you want to say about necromancers? I mean, there's a there's a ton we could say about them. The, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that they basically hide within the jungles of Kedjistan. Kedjistan, by the way, is the country that we were trying to talk uh, about yep. earlier. Chaldeum's a city in. It's Kedjistan. I knew I'd get there eventually, and I got there by looking up the Priests of Rathma for more information to tell you guys. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they, they basically hang out in the same jungles that the Crusaders were in that whole time. Like, for 200 years, the Crusaders were wandering around the jungle uh, looking to figure out what was wrong with the Zacharum faith. And meanwhile, the Necromancers are, like, just there. living. That's where they lived. Going, oh, okay. There's those guys again. Whatever. So, yeah, that there's... There's a lot to the necromancer's role in Sanctuary, and and for that matter, there's a ton about Tragul we don't know squat about. Um, we don't know what Tragul is, or where it comes from, or why it's teaching people about the balance in the first place. Like, you know, it calls itself the Dragon of the Balance, but, like, why do you exist? Yeah, what what does that mean to a cosmic entity at all? Like, what is balance at that point? And for that matter, like, we know how Sanctuary came into existence, you know, it was created with the World Stone by, you know, like the followers, like, you know, Inarius and Lilith used the World Stone to create Sanctuary. But here's this being called the Dragon of the Balance that's tied to Sanctuary. How? Was it created when they created the world? Or is it from the World Stone that was actually the thing that made the world? And if you think about balance, what was the most balanced thing that ever existed? I don't know. What? Anu. The original primordial Anu. Oh, yeah. Because everything existed within it it was perfectly balanced and it decided to unbalance itself by ripping out all of its dark evil aspects and tossing them aside that created tathamet and this the anu that remained in tathamet went and explosively annihilated each other because obviously they would they were probably pretty equal since each was about half of the of everything that's just one of those things that like I keep looking at thinking, you know, the world stone made this world and the dragon of the balance is bound to this world, which was made by the world stone. So is the dragon of the balance Anu or some remnant of Anu? 
some memory of him? I, I don't know. I have no idea. But it's interesting that when you rip all the evil out of Anu and toss it aside, it forms a dragon. You know, dragon with seven heads, but a dragon nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, you know, the fact that they tapped into, like, you know, this particular kind of myth cycle, it's very Sumerian, and it, it's interesting to me what Tragul is and what role Tragul might play. We don't we don't know if Tragul makes any appearance in Diablo 4, but Tragul and, and Rathma helped Mendeln, and through Mendel and Odysseon, they helped stop Lilith, so they felt like, at least once, they felt like Lilith needed to be stopped. If Rathma is the one who freed Lilith this time, does that mean Tragul is behind it? And is it because this is what's needed to maintain balance or bring about the balance point? Yeah, like, have things gone so far in one direction that this needs to happen now? I don't know. But I I do think it's interesting. And I think there's a case to be made for that, too, especially with everything that happened with the angels and, uh, in particular, Malthiel at the end of Diablo 3, right? That's, That's not what was intended. That is not balance. That is definitely skewing it a completely different way, right? Like it's, well, it's an interesting thing. Diablo 3 as a game, you think it's going to be all about how, you know, the the prime evil is returned and the you know the forces of, of the hells are ascended. But by the end of that, it's definitely the angels who are on the aggressive upswing. Mm-hmm. Angels who were no longer part of the order, you know, the heavenly order. It's still angels. And they they do they don't succeed in wiping out all, you know, mortal life on sanctuary, but they kill a lot of people. We don't know how many. But, like, I mean, I remember one time, I, I, one estimate was they killed off, like, you know, like, one out of ten people survived. I don't know if that's how many it was. I don't know if I've actually ever seen anything that, you know, authoritatively says this is how many people survived. But a lot of people died. For, you know, out of the, the nine patriarchs of, of the, uh, the Sop, you know, the Soptev, four of them died. Mm-hmm. You know, and... Was it four? Was were all four? Like, was, was it two and two, two order, two chaos? Because if it wasn't, if any other configuration, they're not in balance anymore. Like, they lose four if two of those guys are from order, one is the neutral guy, and two are from chaos. That's the only, you know, what I'm saying. But they only had four loss. So, so if they lost two, two chaos, one order, and one neutral, not balanced. Three order, one chaos, not balanced. Only if it works out exactly so. You'd have if if the if the middle one died, they've lost their balance. If they lose three of one, you know, you, there's just so so many possible variations here. And then now that order of balance is not balanced anymore. So like, there's a ton of like, what is the state of the world in Diablo Four? It seems to be pretty dis, pretty unbalanced. And if the world is so chaotic and so no longer under control, maybe it's not enough to you know raise armies of skeletons to, to serve your will. Maybe you have to re- to resurrect a past idea. Maybe that's what Lilith is there for. I don't know. Um, maybe they're there to fight her. I no idea. But something is happening, and I definitely want to see how it. The concept of balance, as many of these classes have some relation to, it, how does that work with this story that we're going to see? How does that work with? We know the prime, the, the the greater, the various greater and lesser evils are back. We know because two of them, Duriel and Andariel, show up in this game. Why? What are they doing? Why are they involved? Are they working for Lilith? Do they work against Lilith? I mean, Lilith is the daughter of Mephisto, but their actual, you know, of the seven heads of Tathamet, Duriel and Andariel were, were both heads of Tathamet. They are, you know, compared to to the to the prime three, they're not, you know, super powerful, but they're powerful. They are. You know, 
they're they're at least potentially as powerful as Belial and, and Asmodon. Very, what very are true. they doing? If they're working for Lilith, that's a big deal. Like, what's going on here? So, yeah, I, I'm interested to see what the Necromancer class, even if they're not playable in Diablo 4, um, I want to see what comes about. I want to see what happens. Now, I think the other... I guess I'll make the executive decision on this one. I, I think going from one of the first Nephilim and, and their uh, sort of descendants, we could probably move on to the next one, which I think would wind up being the Amazons, who their society was, uh, I believe it was Philios, right? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, he, he had an angelic lover. Yep. Uh, but he didn't like become his. She was not related to the Ascari themselves. Um, the, the Amazons, as, as far as I remember it, and this is like, you know, it has been a little while since I wrote this up, but there were the two daughters of Phileos um, and his mortal lover, who I think his name was Ascara. Uh, I thought Phileos was the mortal lover, Lacander was the angelic. No, 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 no. Wasn't it? Uh, no, yes, but Phileos was the was the Nephilim, and Ascari was the actual mortal. Ah, okay. Because the, the two daughters weren't yes, like second, Yeah, Ascara, second yes. lover, yep. Yeah, uh, Lycander left, just abandoned uh, Philios. They were lovers. Lycander and Philios were lovers, but Lycander abandoned uh, Philios, and then Philios, who had the sightless eye that he used to use to communicate with uh, Lycander, he abandoned it in his heartbreak, but he eventually met Ascara, and they two fell in love, and he had two two daughters, I believe, with, yes. with, with Ascara. Those two daughters went to Scovos, where they found the sightless eye, they would. They couldn't get the angels to talk to them with the sightless eye, but they could use it to see into the future. Um, and so the two sisters basically took up roles. Um, the one sister who was more um, into arcan, you know, arcanism and, and magic, took up the sightless eye and became the the oracle. And the the more aggressive military of the two sisters became the first Amazon. And they each founded a caste that those two castes together rule the Scovos Isles. Um, and the Sightless Eye has been essentially held by the Oracles ever since, until fairly recently, uh, when it was stolen. And the thieves, who were, of course, you know, from Scovos Isle, they were Amazons themselves, Amazons and Oracles, they fled with the Sightless Eye and eventually ended up in the area around Tristram, where they founded their own order called Sisterhood of the Sightless Eye. And that's where the rogues from the, the original Diablo came from. If you were playing a rogue in the original Diablo, you came from the Sisterhood of the Sightless Eye, you were a member of that order. So you were effectively an, uh, an exiled Amazon on the run. Mm -hmm. And if you're playing a, an Amazon in Diablo 2, you're playing Cassia, you have been sent to find the Sightless Eye. Uh, you're, you're in the world looking for it. So you're showing up at this, the Sisterhood of the Sightless Eye in the beginning of the game. is not a, It's not a coincidence. It's what you're there for. So that's that's the that's the Cliffsnotes versions of the Amazon, I believe? I think that's a, the very, very short version of it uh so i guess we should go back i get talk a little bit about the oracles and and what they predicted or what they knew right so uh the iscari oracles when they had the sightless eye predicted the events of the dark exile thousands of years before it happened right so like they were able to see uh everything that was happening or at least have a really good idea versus a lot of the other ones uh which is the banishment or quote-unquote the banishment of the prime evils uh to sanctuary by the lesser evils and we talked about this the last time we had a diablo uh question where it really wasn't necessarily 
an exile, it's exactly what they wanted because it was all part of the plan to get back to uh, Sanctuary in general to go and handle their business. Uh, but they saw that happening, which I think is which is pretty interesting. Um, and then you had from that the Amazon cast, uh, which is the warriors that trained for millennia in preparation for this. Um, so this is all of this was in relation to seeing future events. That's why the warriors started becoming more uh, prodigious in their efforts to become more honed and seasoned and trained and prepared for it. Uh, and like you said, that's where Cassia uh, came in, where she was sent to go look for the sightless eye. But also uh, it was sort of preordained that it would be part of the battle against the prime evils, uh, along with, you know, the members of the, you know, the other heroes and the uh, Deckard Kane and all that other stuff, um, which I think is kind of interesting. There's there's a sort of like element of predetermination in the Amazonian uh, culture as far as like what their purpose was. And it makes it very fascinating that despite that, is that why they're not there in Diablo three? Because that's that's the other thing. They're distinctly absent from everything that's happening during Diablo three. Like, I'll mention that something weird is going on in Scovos, and that's the last you hear of them. Yeah. So, we don't know if there was uh, a breakdown on Scovos, if there was a civil war, if something was happening there. But with everything that's happening with Diablo 4, there's a very good chance that we're going to find out more about that simply because of the nature of the type of devils or demons or, or evils that we're seeing the, the sea hags and, and bloated dead and things like that seem like it would be very much geared towards islands and Island dwellers. So we might see something along the lines of that. Um, but it also seems fascinating because you have back then, and we'll talk about this probably a little bit more uh, with the next time we do one with the assassins um, or in this case, rogues, you had the the Order of the Sightless Eye. Where did that eye wind up? Where did the Sightless Eye wind up? Do we know? Well, at the at the end of Diablo, like during Diablo two, uh, Andariel is trying to get her hands on the Sightless Eye, mm-hmm. and we don't know what happened to it after that. Although Decker Kane, you know, says you know the possibility is that Andariel might have gotten it, but we don't know. And that's one of the things I wonder is like if Cassia Cassia goes through the, you know, goes through the Sisterhood of the Sightless Eye monastery. Um, and kills Bloodraven. Yep. Bloodraven was the rogue from Diablo, the original Diablo, um, twisted by the evil of, the, of you know of Diablo and sent to conquer the Sisterhood of the Sightless Eye with Andariel. Um, Cassia kills both you know Andariel and the Bloodraven. That means Cassia might have it. And if Cassia has it, Cassia went back to Scovos with it then. And I find myself wondering if that's why you, we don't hear anything out of Scovos. Because they got what like, they wanted, or because you know the the, the if Andariel was after the eye, did Andariel succeed in getting it? Did Andariel do something to it? Like did the did the sightless eye that got brought back to the island was it tainted by the you know the nine hells? I don't I mean the hells. I don't know. The burning hells might have tainted it. Well, who knows? I don't know, but I do know that it is a possibility that that eye, that that eye went back to the island. Now it's also fascinating because there are a couple things uh, that sort of come up with around Andariel. Uh in Diablo three, and it's it's uh I believe it was a season thing, not necessarily a canonical thing. Uh but Andariel, who had 
four extra arms uh, or talons or whatever you want to call it. Um, you can actually get them as a, uh, a wing back reward. Uh, I think it was during season eight, which I think is really, really cool. But and again, nothing has been said about this. There is artwork that has been circulating regarding Andariel and Diablo 4. And I believe they confirmed that Andariel is back uh, in one of the interviews or one of the the uh, pieces that they talked about. It. I can't remember if it was during BlizzCon or post-BlizzCon. So we know Andariel is, is potentially back and causing havoc. We don't know the capacity they're in. Did that have something to do with the sightless eye? Did that have something to do with the grand plan all along? Because it seems to me that if no matter what's happening, having oracles in play, having those that could see the future is bad for whoever wants to mess things up. And if you're playing a long term con and you're saying this is our our this is a sticking point. This is something that we can't contend with. They saw some of our plans thousands of years in, in before we ever did it, before we even knew we were going to do it. This is a problem that we need to fix. How do we corrupt and pervert that? Because that is very much a primeval's uh, sort of thing. They, they take that which is, it sounds so cliche, but that which is pure or that which has one purpose and twist it into their own. Uh, we saw that with the Church of the Trium. We saw that with, um, in this case, the Sightless Eye, potentially. It's all about using your opponent's strengths against themselves, right? And so having her come back, uh, having Andario come back, seems like that might be possibly tied together. This might have been a long-term con uh, to sort of take the Amazons, uh, the Amazonians out of play, to take Scovos out of play, and to isolate the ability of the... Uh, oracles to prepare the rest of the world for what was coming. And maybe that's what they were dealing with in Diablo 3. Because if they had the sightless eye and they could see the future and they could see what was going to come, they one would assume that they would have seen potentially, one, uh, the events of the angels turning on humanity like they did. Two, the corruption of the primevals through the black uh, soul stone where all of them were together into one, you know, prison type being uh, and everything that happened with ravaging uh, the heavens, the high heavens three, they could potentially see the coming of Lilith and maybe it's not Lilith or maybe it's not the primevals. Maybe it's something with Lilith that that was all a long game with them as well, where they would prevent her from coming back potentially. And so you have to do something to take them out and maybe corrupting the sightless eye and giving and away to come back and maybe bring those with her, uh, that, you know, got corrupted like Blood Raven, that were, uh, in sort of like that cultish aspect of like exiled Amazonians, giving them a reason to go back and fight and keep them occupied. You effectively remove a very powerful force from play on the battlefield of Sanctuary. And doesn't matter if it takes however long, that's, I think an interesting play and it could be something we deal with with Diablo 4 uh, where we start to see the aftermath of something like that or maybe the aftermath of what happened when Cassia returned with the sightless eye to Scovos. So and honestly I'm really excited about that because I like Andariel. I think that nothing was uh, nothing enough was done with her before and having her come back especially with I believe there was uh, something about her in the Book of Cain. Um during the the time of Diablo three, like during the run of that game, when they released the Book of Cain, uh, I believe there was mention of Andariel uh, in there as well. 
uh, and sort of the events that follow around her, but having her come back during Diablo 4 would be uh, potentially very, very cool uh, and very flavorful and probably perfect timing because she is essentially one gigantic uh, corrupted Amazonian if you look at her. Any other thoughts on the Amazons? I mean, there, I, do, I do think that with the rogue showing up in uh, Diablo 4, it's a. It would be a good time to deal with the the, the origins of at least that. I mean, I think we're gonna. I think one of the things they said is that we're gonna get other kinds of rogues, lore wise. It's not just not every person who steals things in the in the Diablo universe is a member of the Sightless Eye. So, but I would like to see them do more with the Sisterhood of the Sightless Eye and why they stole the Sightless Eye. Mm-hmm. They ran the why they were upset, what their beef was with the oracles, why they stole the eye. The fact that apparently the oracles didn't predict that, uh, so clearly there might be limits to what they can actually learn via it. And there, there's just a lot that I would like to see happen in Diablo 4 with that storyline. Um, yeah, I guess that's basically it. Yeah, and I, I think we're going to start to see some more interesting play between uh. I don't want to say just these three classes, but I think they have something that they're going to bring to the table come Diablo 4, uh, especially the, the Necromancers with Lilith being back in play. There's a lot of tied up in there as well, especially with the Necromancer appearing in Diablo 3 uh, and having quests. I'm not just talking about the playable character, uh, but there were actual NPC quests that you interacted with that revolved around trying to bring the world back to some semblance of order. Uh, in those little pockets in which they could. Uh, so having the Priest of Rathma back on the table, I think, is is sort of important and will probably be a, a major aspect of it. I would not be surprised if the monks have a, a continued role that's slightly larger uh, than what it was in Diablo 3. Yes, you got to play as them in Diablo 3, and, you know, canonically they were like a defender of the people, but there could be more to it, especially with everything that happened with uh, Chaldeum and, and everything surrounding that particular part of the world, and then the aftermath of what that means with, uh, wow, I can't think of his name now, Malthiel, with ever, the aftermath of, of Malthiel's, we'll call it a genocide, it really is, um, and what he visited upon humanity and the success of that, as well as now having all these angels and demons running around Sanctuary, they're probably going to be more present, more important, more necessary as these little tiny pockets of, of humanity need defending, uh, whether it's we get to play them again, which I don't think they've announced all the classes we're going to get to play yet for Diablo 4, uh, or whether it's an NPC that has something important to do with the story, much like the Necromancer before it became a playable class in Diablo 3. And then, like you said, I would this would be a really good time to start dealing with the Amazonians and Skolos, and that's something I know a lot of people really wanted for Diablo 3, but it feels like maybe this is the right time, because maybe there's still a standing army on that island uh, that might be able to go back out into the world and maybe do some good or fight on one side or the other, but who knows. Uh, but anything else you want to add about what we might potentially see in the future or uh, any other thoughts on either of the three, any of the three classes before we call it a day? No. <laughs> Cause we'll be I was here actually, all day. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sitting there going, it's exactly four o'clock. If I say anything, we'll be here till four thirty. I I do want to do other things today. It's a really nice day out, so I do want to go see some other stuff. But I do I do also want to say that I am sorry that I forgot we named the three that we named <laughs> okay. because I I I would have liked to have talked about the assassins and and how they relate because they're a big part of the Visual Eye Mage Wars. But 
we'll get, maybe next time we can do the assassins. Yeah, we have a couple more classes that we need to go through, uh, so there will be definitely a part four at some point. Uh, but Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, or an ad-free site ex- and an ad-free site experience. Wow. Uh, I do want to thank you all for sending in questions and comments and themes. Please continue to do so. If you have questions for this podcast or the other podcasts, send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or one of our various Discord channels. And with that, we'll see you next week. 